This is Bonafide Ministry. One of the things that I was told several times was be careful when you go through school that you don't become so smart that you lose your faith. And, you know, there's some truth to that. There are some believers who went through graduate education and that led them away from believing in God. Uh, one example one example of that is uh, Bart Ehrman, who is a Christian origins professor at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He was a very religious person until he went through his PhD work and then he became agnostic, which he is to this day. But he is a scholar on scripture and Christian origins, even though I differ in conclusion from him on a lot of things. So it is possible to go to the university to lose your faith per se, or to become so intelligent that, you know, certain things are no longer viewed through the lenses of faith. But I went on and got my master's degree and my PhD. My master's degree was in theological studies. My PhD was in humanities. So I didn't want to go through necessarily a Bible program, mainly because of the language requirements. If you're if you pursue a PhD in Bible, you have to have a working knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, uh, which the Bible's written in, and that's not that big of a thing. But then you have to have two modern languages, usually Spanish, French, German, two of those three. And, you know, I was like, eh, I really don't want to learn German. But a lot of works in biblical studies are written in German. So I went the humanities route. And one of the things that I found in my master's program and even beyond my doctorate is how we read scripture in the church is different from how it's read in universities. Now, at the risk of creating a false dichotomy, we don't see these two as complementary to one another. We often see them as being at odds. But there are some clergy who work in both, uh, such as N.T. Wright, who has at times been a bishop in the Anglican Church and a scholar in residence at Oxford University. J.I. Packer and John Stott, they too were churchmen, but also influential in the academy. And the universities will delve deeper into scripture than what a person might expect. And theorems have arisen that the church would find shocking. Some of them border on heretical, if not outright false. But they aren't new. They're just new to us. And the novelty of those views, no matter how long they've been around, it tends to make church folk a little skeptical. But the way that the Bible is read in, in academia is through the lens of what's called biblical criticism. Now, don't misunderstand criticism because it's not criticizing the Bible. Criticism is more along the lines of critical thinking. Uh, so when you think biblical criticism, think critical thinking. Now that arose as a term in the 17th century. And during that same period, Baruch Spinoza may have been the first to use this approach when he read the Torah or the books of Moses. He was actually expelled from his synagogue in Amsterdam and he was labeled a heretic, that is a false teacher, because his method challenged traditional thinking on the text. So biblical criticism involves asking 
three main questions. Number one, how did the text come into being? When did it come into being? Where did it come into being and why? Secondly, what was the mindset of the author and the audience? And third, what type of literature is a book or a section of a book? Now, Spinoza questioned the authorship of the Torah. Now, we as Christians and even Jews believe that the Torah was written by Moses somewhere traditionally in the 15th century BCE, but the 13th century may be more likely from a historical point of view. But you see, raising these questions can doubt or cast doubt on whether or not Moses received divine revelation from Mount Sinai. But what's important to remember, however, is that he could have received Genesis from there as well from the traditions of his people. The narrative portions of Exodus up until he received the law could have been a chronicling, but the law at the end of Exodus and Leviticus, plus in Deuteronomy, would have no doubt been divinely inspired, not to say that the rest of it isn't. Much of Numbers was the detailing of the events that occurred in Israel's wandering in the wilderness, but portions of the law may have been given to him atop Mount Sinai as well. But these questions make people in the church uncomfortable because it can cast doubt on what we have long believed. But here's what I tell folks, because I am a minister full-time, but I also have academic credentials and read pretty academically dense works. Regardless of a conclusion that you may arrive at, Scripture is no less inspired because of it. A suggestion has been made that since Moses is referred to in the third person, someone was writing about him rather than he being the author. Now, there are passages where Moses explicitly wrote things down. Let's look at a couple of them. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So there the text clearly says and clearly commands that Moses make a record that he write down X, Y, and Z for such purposes. Uh, Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, Moses told the people all the words of the Lord. Verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So there are a couple times that he's mentioned as explicitly writing. And there are other examples of that throughout the Torah, specifically in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But scholars suggest that the majority of these books were not written by Moses, but they were written by another author. And that other author may have only been one among many authors of these books. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 5 says, On this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law. And so some scholars look at that and they say, well, it's writing about Moses. Wouldn't he have used first person pronouns? So if it's written about him, he didn't write it. I mean, I can see how people come to these conclusions. Uh, Deuteronomy 31 seems to be a third person account of what Moses did. But there's also the fact that 
Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Well, Moses couldn't have written about his own death. So, okay. What does all this mean? We believe that Moses wrote the Torah. How come there are evidences that may point to the contrary? Well, in biblical criticism is another discipline that's called redaction criticism. A redactor is an editor. So over time, some statements have probably been edited. That doesn't mean that the scriptures are any less inspired. For example, Genesis 12, verse 6 and Genesis 13, verse 7 mentions Canaanite occupation of the land when Abram was around. So it suggests by that fact that the author lived when the land was not occupied by Canaanites. What probably happened is that at a later time, the editors updated certain facts here or there for the sake of their audience and their context. I'll give you an example. Genesis 14, verse 14. It says, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, Dan wasn't named until after the conquest. You can read that in Joshua 19.47 and Judges 18.29. So Moses couldn't have written about a location being called Dan when it wasn't even named that until after he was dead. So it kind of shows that somewhere along the line, an editor, probably a priest, probably a rabbi, updated that information. So does that make the Bible any less inspired? I don't think it does. But some people, that really shakes their faith. Then you have to look that there are passages in the Old Testament that mention sources that Scripture used. For example, Numbers 21, verse 14. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Well, now, what book is that? We don't have a copy of that, but there's a quotation from it. Joshua 10.13 mentions the book of Jasher. We don't have that book. 1 Kings 11.41 mentions the book of the Acts of Solomon. We don't have that book. Well, what about 1 Kings 14, verse 19? There the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. You know, we've got Chronicles, right? Kings and Chronicles. So we understand that. But some of these other books are never mentioned in Scripture. And there are others as well. And so someone would say, see, Scripture is derivative, so it can't be divinely inspired. Well, that's not necessarily true. When Paul spoke to the Athenians in Acts 17, he quoted from prophet, uh, excuse me, pagan playwrights, for in him we live and move and have our being. That was derivative, but yet 
Paul used it in preaching the good news. But there are several sources in the Old Testament that contain similar narratives. So it's been suggested that they borrowed one from the other. If you read Isaiah 36 and 37 and 2 Kings 18 and 19, they sound a lot alike. So do 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 sound a lot alike. The point is, biblical criticism is a way to better understand the scriptures. Does it uncover some nuggets that may be a little uncomfortable? Absolutely. But we don't read scripture this way in the church, even though your preacher may be aware of these kinds of things. So, with that in mind, when you think about how the church reads the Bible and how the university reads the Bible, there is and can be a disconnect. But that disconnect shouldn't shake a person's faith. If anything, it should give them a better understanding of Scripture and a better reverence of Scripture. So, if you've ever wondered what's so different between the two, now you know. <laughs>